0: The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Now, hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright... And, behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he went from, sent him from the valley of Hebron, and, ke- and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit the pit was empty; there was no water in it. They set. Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben re- returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus, his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all the men in the place this morning. Um, we're very thankful that you're here. This is uh, being a father is a high calling. It's a great responsibility. We take it very seriously around Sacred City. Uh, We do our best to raise up men and to train men and to love their wives and to lead their families and to serve God and to serve His church. So we want to welcome you this morning. Uh, But what we're doing, we're just continuing our study in the book of Genesis. We find ourselves today in the 37th chapter. And today marks a very significant turning point for us in the book. Uh, The book of Genesis when it was originally written, is actually made up of 11 different genealogies. Um, Theologians or scholars call these Toledots. All right, Toledots. Um, Every time you see uh, these are the generations of, in the book of Genesis, it's a different section or a different genealogy. So the whole book is actually made up of 11 different large chunks, kind of like 11 different chapters. Uh, last week we saw Sam dealt whimsically with Esau's family line and legacy, and today we enter into the climactic conclusion uh, to the Book of Genesis. All right, the last 13 chapters here are going to deal with uh, mainly going to deal with Joseph and the sons of Jacob. So this last section of Genesis deals with the transformation of Jacob's sons. Instead of giving you a bunch of overview and context right away, I would just like to jump into the text, go verse by verse through it, and then give you some commentary as we go. So if you would open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 37, if you need a Bible, there's some back in the back, or you can pull it out on your smartphone. Uh, We have a Sacred City app. If you want to download that, it'll also be on the screen with us as we follow along. Genesis chapter 37. I believe that God's got some good stuff for us today. So, (laughs) excuse me, I'm going to pray, and then let's just jump right in. Father, we celebrate you on this Father's Day, that you are the great father um, of us, your children, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us the weight, the men in the room that are fathers. Thank you for uh, giving us this gift of fatherhood. I pray that today as we study your word, we would learn from Jacob. We would learn what not to do, what to do. Um, And we'd learn from you how you are our great father and how you shepherd us and lead us. And you know us and you know our frame. God, I ask that you would give us a mind to understand your word, that you would give us eyes to be able to bring it in, ears to be able to hear it, that you would anoint my mind to think your thoughts and my voice to speak your words this morning, Um, that it would be all of you and very, very little of me. I pray that your anointing would go forth and you would um, bring great light to the gospel, great glory to yourself and to Jesus Christ um, through your word and through this text that we get to study today. In Jesus' name, amen. Are we ready to dig in? Are we ready? All right. Come on now. Genesis chapter 37 verse 1. Let's go. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So we've been studying this book and now he's back. Jacob is in the promised land and he's settled down in the promised land. All right. And we have been moving up Abraham's tree Abraham's family tree in the book of Genesis. We studied Abraham, and then we studied Isaac, and then we studied Jacob. And now, finally, the focus is turning to Jacob's son. And mainly, the focus is turning to Jacob's 11th son, Joseph. Okay? Listen to this. Just let me paint this picture for you. Um, Moses, the author of the book of Genesis, spent two chapters on all of creation And he spends 13 chapters telling us the story of Joseph. Okay? This is is very important for us to understand. It's important for the nation of Israel. It's important for our faith and the gospel. It's important for us to understand the life of Joseph. And one of the things that you saw in the past is that God did a lot of miracles. Okay? What's unique about the story of Joseph is God, it's kind of God's invisible hand at work. God's not... Guiding and leading necessarily through a bunch of miracles, but through something that we're going to come to find out later is called providence. And we'll get to that in a minute. But let's just keep reading. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. All right, setting it up right here. We're focusing on Joseph now. Being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Remember his father, oh, good old Jacob. He's got technically two real wives and two kind of sister wives. All right. He's got four wives going on and Joseph is growing up in the big of this big, happy redneck family, right? Four wives, 13 different kids, right? They live in a van down by the river. I mean, it's that type of family. Okay. <clears throat> now look at verse as we keep reading. Let's, let's keep reading. He was a boy with the fathers of Bill and Zilpah, his father's wives and Joseph Brought a bad report of them to their father. Okay? Now, in the Hebrew, this is the easiest way to say this is Joseph was, he's the 11th son. Joseph was a tattletale. Okay? There's one in every family. Right? Even if you're a single child, you tattle on yourself. Right? There's this tattletales are in every single family. So, there's this thing about Joseph that he wanted to get one up on his brothers. And he would go and check out, check out the brothers. And mom, they're eating all their gummy worms. Mom, they're eating their dessert first. Mom, they're playing too much video games. Mom, they're... right? Joseph was a tattletale. Okay, so Moses is setting this up for us right away. Now, many of you, if you grew up in church and you had Joseph in his little fancy robe, you know, on the on the flannel graph in Sunday school, you you never really probably heard this backstory of the story. But it's important for us to understand what's really going on. So let's just set this story straight right here. Joseph is a tattletale. Tattletales aren't too endearing, right? The brothers aren't wanting to invite him into too many things because they know he's just going to rat on them to mom and dad about everything they do wrong. So Joseph brings a bad report. Now let's keep reading. Verse 3. Here we get some more backstory. Now, Israel, that's Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, come on, parents. Favoritism is not good. Favoritism in the Bible, favoritism is a sin. And we know that if you have multiple kids, that there, are, there might be kids that you have that you resonate more deeply than other kids. Right? If you're a high strung individual, maybe you like that child who's a little high strung like you and wild in the life of the party, and maybe you think the quiet one that sits in the corner and read books is just a little odd. Okay? That's okay. You can feel that. You can feel that. Like you don't have much in common with your child. That's okay to feel that. What's not okay is to let the other kids know it. It's not okay. I mean, you are breeding dissension into your family if you show favoritism to your kids, right? Like one kid gets the sucker all day and the other ones don't, right? You take one kid kid on a date and the other one, no, he just sits home, sits at home by himself, right? It's bad. That's bad. That's negative, right? We need to treat our kids individually. The Bible says to raise them up in the fear and admission of the Lord, train them in the way that they should go. And many of our kids, they have different personalities and different temperaments. And that means there's a different way to love them, to train them, to lead them. There's a different way for each individual child. It's wrong to treat your kids like a herd. Okay? We must raise them up individually, know their hearts, know their giftings, know their talents, know their desires, and then lead them and love them in light of how God made them. Okay? But Jacob does not uh, follow the way of God in this. And let's see, look, at, look what Jacob does. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and also because he was the 11th son, the son of... Uh, his favorite wife, right? And he made him a robe of many colors. Now, they don't really know. This is just a greatly ornamented robe. They don't really know if, if it's a robe of many colors. It doesn't actually say that in the Hebrew, it, but it, it's an ornamented robe. So it's either, it's either just a really fancy robe or it's a long robe with long sleeves, but it, 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 it said special treatment. It said favorite son, all right? So I want you to get this picture. Joseph, he's 17, right? He's a tattletale. He's running around the house in his little special pimp robe, right? He's tattling on all of his brothers. And his brothers, I mean, this is not like one kid gets a robe. That's like waking up on Christmas morning, the trees all, you know, decorated, and there's Joseph's presence and everybody else. No, nothing. Right? This isn't going to generate love and generosity and caring and brotherly love in the family. This is going to generate jealousy and dissension and envy. So what happens? Well, Israel makes him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. All right? Joseph's brothers saw the special treatment that that Israel was giving him and they hated him. They could not speak peacefully to him. I was reading a, a sermon from Tim Keller this week and he said through his Joseph, through Joseph's spoiled bratness, through his stupidity, through his meanness, through his nastiness, through his pride and his arrogance, he stirred up the worst in his brothers. Proverbs fourteen thirty tells us that jealousy rots the bones. Parents, jealousy rots the bones. As parents, it's our, God, it's our job to shepherd and discipline our children in such a way to fight against jealousy. So many parents think that if a child is jealousy, they placate to that jealousy and get them whatever the child wants. It's absolutely not the right way to go. We must fight against jealousy. We must communicate to our kids that jealousy is a sin. And that if their brother gets blessed, they should be happy for their brother. Right? But Joseph wasn't just, you know, getting blessed. Joseph was actually getting special treatment from the father. And then let's see what else Joseph does here. Verse (laughs) 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now I love this part. Joseph runs around with his special little pimp robe, right? It's like a robe that says, daddy's favorite on the back. He wears this thing around. He goes and he tattletales on his brothers. There's a little bit of an animosity. He's the 11th son. So he's at the very bottom. He's got all older brothers. And then one day Joseph wakes up and he has this dream. And this is how God speaks to his people, mainly in the Bible. God, God can still give dreams to people. God can still do that. We have reports that God does that in Muslim countries where they're closed to the gospel, that God saves people, gives them a dream, shows them Jesus Christ, and they get saved. I've heard a lot of different reports of these things. God can do that. But this is what an unwise, foolish young man Joseph does. Okay, hey, hey, brothers, I had this dream last night. Tell me what you think it means. Like, I walk into a room. And my sheath, let's just like, I stand up real tall and then you guys all bow down to me. What do you think that means? I'll tell you what it means. Get over here. Right? That's what it means. You means you're about to get a whooping from your 10 older brothers. I'm just pondering this. I'm not very wise. I'm only 17. I haven't studied all the scriptures. What do you think this means? When I walk in a light shines on me and you guys are all pumping my gas. What do you think that means? Could it mean that I'm awesome? Could that, is that what it means? It's like not wise for a younger brother to do this, but he's got the pimp robe on. He knows nobody can touch him because he's daddy's favorite. Right? And it says this very uh, specifically in verse six and seven, that they hated him even more because of his dream. Now, listen, this is a dream that's pointing out a doctrine called election that God chooses some to specially reveal himself to. And he, then he passes over others. And many people hate the doctrine of election, and so did Jacob's brother. Or so did Joseph's brothers. God says, "I'm going at a young age, seventeen. I'm going to choose Joseph to be my man in the future." He, all right, and, he, and Joseph goes and tells his brothers that, and his brothers hate it. My little punk brother, snot nosed seventeen year old bratty, tattletale brother. God's going to choose you, no. I'm, you know, Reuben, I'm the oldest. He's probably going to choose me, right? So they hate, they hate Joseph and they hate his dream. They hate what God's going to do through it. Joseph now here is a spoiled brat, but his brothers are ignorant of the ways of God. And they, in verse eight, look at verse eight, it says it again. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Three times in those three verses, we hear they hated him, they hated him, they hated him. All right? Even us with a public school education, we should pick up on this pretty quick. Right? Joseph's a spoiled brat and his brothers hated him. Proverbs fourteen thirty: jealousy rots the bones. Okay? They're jealous of him and that jealousy eats away at us and even it eats away at our relationships. Now, look at verse 9 and 10. This is just ridiculous. Then God sends another dream. He dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers. And he said, behold, I, I mean, really Joseph, come on, behold, I have dreamt another dream. Behold, the sun, that's his dad and the moon, that's his mom and 11 stars. That's his 11 brothers were bowing down to me. He told it to him again. This kid is thick, right? Like the whooping he got the first time probably wasn't good enough. This is that little brother that won't learn the lesson. He's still a little arrogant punk. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. said to him, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? The answer to that, of course, is what? If you know the book of Genesis, you're going to find out, yes, that's exactly what will happen. Now, I'm jumping 10 chapters in the future and we're going to get there but that's this is this dream that he has at 17 will come to pass but it does not come to pass the way that he would hoped it does not come to the pass the way that we would plan it does not if you're writing a script of your life it will not happen that way it happens in a lot darker more destructive more painful way but his father does come basically to bow down before him and his brothers do as well but uh, verse 11 and his brothers were and his brothers were jealous of him. Again, we can see jealousies all over this text. But his father kept the saying in mind. Hint, hint. But the father kept this. Okay, maybe there's something to this dream, Jacob. Remember, I had a dream once. Remember, I saw heaven opened and angels going up and down on the ladder, which is the Son of God, and Jesus came and wrestled with me. So Jacob's like, hmm, maybe. Jacob remembers, hey, I was chosen. I was the second. I was chosen over my older brother. God elected me and not Esau. So maybe God is choosing Joseph. Maybe. So he he says, whoa, you little arrogant punk. Don't talk like that. But he meditates on it in his mind. He knows this is probably the way that God works. All right, now listen. This is the beginning of an amazing story. What we just read is going to set up and provide a bit of context and backstory for the remainder of the book of Genesis. This story, I literally probably chose to preach through the book of Genesis so I could preach on this these next 13 chapters. All right? So the last 37 chapters have been a prequel for the next 13. All right? I'm so stoked about this story of Joseph because I believe it's a, it's a... It's a universal human story. It's a universal human longing. We could all resonate with it. It's what many of the movies that we go to, they have pieces of this that we resonate with today. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. It should be made into a movie. I know, you know, it kind of made into this musical, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dream Dreamcoat or whatever, right? But they missed some key pieces to the story, all right? So if you've seen it, you still need to understand what's going on here. So what we've witnessed... Over the past 40 weeks, we've preached 40 weeks through the book of Genesis. What we've seen is that God is on a mission to make the world right again. I think every person, your neighbor, every person in the cubicle next to you, we would all resonate that the world is not as it should be, right? Murders happen, pain happens, relationships are difficult, Roses have thorns, animals kill, like tornadoes happen. The world is not as it should be. And what the book of Genesis shows us is there's a reason for that. It's called sin. It's called Adam and Eve's rebellion and everything has fallen. But now God is on a mission to restore all things back to himself. He's on a mission to fix all things. And God has been doing that. By sovereignly handpicking people to know him, follow him, and spread his name to all the earth. But what we've noticed, if you've been around for a while, you've noticed that God doesn't pick winners. Right? God, put, God picks weirdos and crooks, he picks moon worshippers and thieves. But God, with his amazing grace, over time, changes these crooked men into men of character and men of God. As Martin Luther once said, God enjoys drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. So that should give us all some hope, right? God doesn't pick men or women off the A-team. He likes to use people that uh, other people would normally not choose if they're in their right mind right? God's like the major league scout. He's going to a, you know, he's going to a major league baseball game and he's drafting the mascot to play second base, right? It does, man, that guy's got some moves over there. We need a second baseman. Come on over here. Take the hat off, right? Put down the tail feather and come play second base for us, right? That's the way God drafts people into his work in the book of Genesis. It doesn't make sense. And I, I, But what God does, as we see, is through His grace, He takes these mascots and He changes them through faith. And then as a result, God gets all the credit for it. He gets all the glory. People, their natural talent doesn't get the glory. Man doesn't get the glory. But God gets the glory. And now, after we're just coming on the heels of studying the life of Jacob and studying the the man Jacob, I hope no one is going, you know what? I really want my son to grow up and be a Jacob. Right? Like lies, cheats, steals, marries four women, doesn't respond well when his daughter gets kidnapped and raped. If you're looking for a good example and hero to read to your kids at night, don't choose Jacob. Right? But now as we read the story and we get to see God's grace and we get to see his wisdom, it just put on display for us. But many of us have a hard time resonating with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because God shows up to them in such miraculous ways. We saw a few weeks ago that Jesus actually came down and wrestled all night long with Jacob. Pre-incarnate Jesus shows up to Jacob and whoops him all night long, right? Wrestles with him, then finally pops his hip out of joint, and the rest of his life he walks with a limp. Shoot, if Jesus took me down and whooped me all night long, I think I'd be a different person in the morning too, right? But 99% of the time, that is not how God works in our life. And this is a turning point for us in the book of Genesis, because up until now, the first 36 chapters have really been showing and highlighting God's miraculous nature, that God is sovereign over all the earth, and he can speak, and he can give dreams, and he can cause miracles to happen, and and 100-year-old women to give birth to babies. God can do all of this stuff, but now the remaining 13 chapters are going to show God's other hand, God's invisible hand, as it were, as how God normally orchestrates all the things in our life. See, most of the time, God seems rather silent, doesn't he? Other than his written word here in the Bible, but even that oftentimes seems like some kind of hieroglyphics, right? It's open for interpretation. I can't really understand it. But what we're about to see in the life of Joseph is God's invisible hand getting Joseph where he's supposed to be, And just as important, making Joseph into the man that he has to be. God wants to use Joseph, but Joseph's not ready. Can I tell you personally that I felt called to plant a church when I was about 18 years old. I've been saved probably for six months. I felt called to plant a church. I wanted to lead. I had a dream. I even had a guy pray over me and kind of prophesy over me that I would be like David raising up many mighty men and i was ready man i was like let's do this right now but i didn't have the depth of character to step into that position i didn't have the wisdom or the humility i was like untempered steel see an untempered sword it looks exactly the same as a tempered sword it looks identical but it but it's not the same see an untempered sword if you swing it in battle it shatters See, I looked ready, I was talented, but I wasn't ready. Shoot, let me be honest, right now, like, I don't feel ready. I wake up most of the day, put my shoes on, and I don't feel ready right now. God is still tempering me. He's still graciously shaping me into the man that he's called me to be. Let me tell you, it's painful. But if you don't temper a sword, when you're in the battle, the steel will become brittle and it will break. See, that's why when we were planning this church, I said, I want to be a part of the Acts 29 network. I want to have other men that can help temper me and shape me. That's why we have an external advisory board. And actually next week, we're going to talk a little bit about what that external advisory board does and is. And we're going to present to you three men that are in the process now of becoming elders at our church. That I want, and elders at our church are pastors. Okay, we're on the equal playing field that at Sacred City, I'm not the top dog and that everybody reports to me and, and I do and I say what the elders do like w- elders are all we're all together. We have a plurality of elders. I wanted to put myself underneath the authority of an external advisory board. And I want to put myself under the authority of a network because I knew that I'm a young, arrogant, boastful, moronic man like Joseph. I knew that about me. Right? I couldn't have the, the reins, And I've seen, and you guys, just look across, Google pastors, fallout, sin, affairs, and you're going to get enough to understand why. Pastors have a target on their chest from the enemy. Right, And pastors many times set themselves up for failure, and they don't have the character and the depth to sustain the attacks of the enemy. They haven't been tempered by God, and they get taken out really, really easy through affairs. Through drug addictions, through all all kinds of ways, and what we're going to see in the life of Joseph, this is what our character and our humility. This is what it's like. See, if you're not ready, if you have not been tempered, when you need to be strong, when you're in the thick of the battle, when the things get really difficult, when you need to be strong, you shatter. You break. See, this is the state of many pastors today. They haven't been tempered. They're gifted. They can preach or their wife can sing or they can gather people and rally people. But when the hits the fan, right, they shatter their lives come off the rails. They don't know how to love their wife. They don't know how to lead their family and they destroy churches because they've never been tempered. That's what we see in Joseph here. Joseph is untempered steel. He's 17, immature, impetuous, bratty, arrogant, and spoiled rotten. He walks with a swagger. He feels superior to his brothers. His dad has taught him that he's special and he's privileged. Listen, this is so unique to me. When God was creating Joseph in his mother's womb, He was specially designing Joseph to fulfill his purpose in life. But God uses normal processes most of the time. See, Joseph is born with all the natural talents that he needs, but all of those talents have to be developed and matured over time. Even Jesus had to be developed and mature over time. He didn't pop out of the womb quoting scripture. He had to be taught how to read. He had to be taught how to speak. Right? He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That's what it says about Jesus. The same is true of Joseph. The same is true of me. The same is true of you. See, one thing that Joseph wasn't born with, nor were any of us born with, is humility. And the book of James tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now listen, how do you develop humility? Humility. Listen, I've read C. G. Mahaney's book on humility three or four times. It doesn't work. Right? Humility and a depth of character, phenomenal book, by the way. Humility and depth of character isn't developed merely by reading books. I wish it was. It's developed very similar to the way a sword is tempered. See, a sword to be tempered, it's heated up, it's cooled down. It's heated up, it's cooled down. It's heated up, it's cooled down. It's There's a process to it. It's not a quick process. It takes a lot of heat. It takes stress. It takes sweat. It takes tears. It takes pain. And nobody wants to hear this today, I know, on Father's Day. But in order for God to make you into the man or the woman that you have to be, it's going to take a tempering process. In this life of Joseph, we're going to see God's process. Those first 11 verses... Show us that Joseph needed to be tempered. He was arrogant. He was impetuous, right? He was a tattletale. He was a brat. He was spoiled. Unlike any of us, right? No, very much like all of us, probably. First 11 verses show why he needed to be tempered. And the next 13 chapters are going to show how God tempers a person that he wants to use. And I think that many of us are going to really deeply resonate with this story. See, what we're about to witness is how God normally, everybody say normally, how God normally guides people to their destiny and how God normally, God normally makes people into the people that they need to be when they get there. A lot of times people say when opportunity and preparation meet, when opportunity and preparation meet, that's when your destiny kind of unfolds. But many of us, we think it's going to happen like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. Show up and go, we're going to meet somebody, and they're going to go, okay, here's what you want to be the person God wants you to be? You want to know where God's leading you? You want to know the plan of your life? Here it is. Follow the yellow brick road. Right? And we're like, oh. Oh. The golden bricks. I can stay on the path. And if I just walk on this golden path, then I'm going to shoot. So, uh, so eventually I'm going to meet somebody and they're going to go, you know what? Here's the major you need to declare. Oh, okay. I'll declare that major then. And then we're going to walk on this yellow brick road and then find, there's the woman that you need to meet. Oh, there's the woman or there's the man. I'll get married now. There's the house and make, here's the offer that you should make on this house. Oh, Okay, here's when you should negotiate with your boss for a raise. Okay, great. Should I cut the grass today or tomorrow? It's on the yellow brick road. I know people that think this way, right? God told me to buy the Kraft macaroni and cheese today when I was at the store instead of the generic. Really? This is like a yellow brick road way of seeing God's will. And guys, listen, maybe that could happen for some people. Rarely does it. I don't know if it ever has. You know, what, you know how God leads his people and how God shapes his people? It's more like uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Great, great movies. But he's, he's standing there and do you remember he's got to make the leap? And it's an invisible bridge of faith. And he's like, this jump is impossible. I can't do this. And he has to take one step onto the invisible bridge. And it's, a, it's literally an invisible bridge of faith. That's how God leads his people. It's like an invisible path. Invisible. And we're going to see that through the life of Joseph. There are no huge signposts posts that, that say, go this way. I meet so many men today who are so addicted to video games and they don't know how to make decisions and they literally want someone to show up or God to show up in a dream and go, tell the woman you want to marry her and ask her to marry But there's other women. Yeah, there's other women. There's millions of other women. And guess what? There's no like, God doesn't have one person in the world that you have to marry. And he's just waiting for you to meet that one person. And boy, I really hope he pops this question. Do you love her? Ask her to marry you. There it is. And it's God's will. All right. It's not that complicated. You find a woman. Is she nice? Does she think, does she buy your garbage that you spill? Right. Does she believe you're actually kind of cool? Marry this woman. Does she love Jesus? Marry this woman. Right. Make some babies. Do it. All right. That's what happens. All right. Now. So what we see here. (laughs) I, I take my kids to the donut shop every Friday morning, and I had all three of them there last week. And people come up, three kids, huh? Yeah, three kids. You're pretty young. I am. That's a handful. Yeah. And the joke is always, "Do you know what? You know what causes that? Don't you?" Right? They see people with like three kids today. It's like an anomaly. An, an, they like, are you Mormon or something? Like, it's like an anomaly. I'm like, yeah, having a really sweet wife. That's what causes this. right? You don't have any kids, do you? <laughs> right? So what we see with Joseph here is this invisible hand of God, this invisible path of God that God kind of stays in the background and orchestrates all things while sovereignly controlling every single circumstance and every single detail of Joseph's life. Now, this is how God normally works. No flash, no flamboyance, no flaming fire pot falling from the sky. This is how God shapes us into the people that we're called to be, and he gets us where we're supposed to be. He does it through his sovereign plan, In his invisible hand. Theologically, this is called God's providence. Theologically, this is called God's providence. Now listen, I'm going to define this for you. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, he defines God's providence like this. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. A big definition, a good definition. Now, I'm really thankful that God just didn't give us a systematic theology book, but he gave us his story. And I want you to see how this doctrine plays out in the real life of Joseph Joseph and his brothers. Okay? Listen to me. This is what it means the doctrine of God's providence. God did not create the world, wind it up like a clock and then leave it on his own. Deists believe that. They believe that God kind of set everything and then stepped back and now he's abs- he's he's outside of creation and he just kind of doesn't he doesn't involve himself. The biblical God is involved, sleeves rolled up, every detail. When a sparrow falls from the sky, God caused it, God knows it. When a tornado hits, God's in control of it. God's in control of every single circumstance in your life. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. Okay? That's the doctrine of providence. And I'm providentially about to get this bad boy right here. You're going to be... woo. Close. Sorry. It's bugging me. All right. So let's get, so let's see what this looks like in real life. What's the doctrine of providence look like in real life? Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pastoring? First off, stop right here. Where are the brothers at? The brothers are out working. The brothers are out pastoring. And what's Jacob? Or where's, where's Joseph? Joseph's at home with dad. Joseph's at home, you know, leveling up on Call of Duty right now. His brothers are out working hard, and Joseph, the favored son, is sitting around in his pimp robe playing Call of Duty. Okay? No wonder the brothers hate him. But dad comes up with this great idea. (laughs) It's like Joseph's the overseer of his older brothers. Joseph, here, get your pimp robe. Okay, take your clipboard. Go check on your brothers and see if they're doing a good job, and then come back and tell on me. Oh, that sounds like a great plan. This is going to go well. Let's keep reading. Come, I will send you to them. And he said, here I am. So verse 14. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? Okay, stop here. Joseph is sent to check on his brothers. His brothers are at working. He's at home playing. Joseph gets lost. What does the providence providence of God look like? God sends him out in the desert. Go find your brothers. It's a 50 mile journey. They're shepherds. They have to travel around. They're kind of nomadic because they have to to feed the sheep, right? So go find your your brothers. It's a 50 mile hike on your own. Joseph gets lost, right? He doesn't have GPS on his iPhone yet. He's out there. He's lost. And providentially, he runs into this. Mystery man. This mystery man finds him. Hey, dude, Joseph, what are you looking for? Hey, I'm looking for my brothers. Okay, this is how God is up in heaven, sovereignly orchestrating every event in his life. Now, keep reading. What are you seeking? Verse 16. I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? Okay, Joseph, he's kind of assuming that this guy would know where his brothers are. But the man said... They have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dauphin. Okay. Do you see this? Joseph gets lost in the desert. A man walks up and goes, Hey dude, what are you looking for? Hey, I'm looking for my brothers. Do you know where they are? Well, actually I do. Actually, they were here a few days ago and I overheard them saying, let us go to Dauphin. So your brothers are in Dauphin. Right? And I bet Joseph walked away and go, wow, fate. The stars aligned. And every, listen, this is the doctrine of God's providence. God's invisible hand moving people right where he wants them to be. It's not a coincidence. It's not fate. It's not luck. There's no such thing as luck. This is God's invisible hand. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul says that God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. That God is in control of every single detail of all of creation. That he's managing all of creation according to his sovereign will. And he does so in such a way where our choices still matter. This is not fatalism. Islam believes in fatalism, that what you do doesn't even matter, that God's going to accomplish everything, no matter what. It's already set. Like the doctrine of election and predestination and providence does not negate our choices, but God sovereignly works through our choices. Do I get that? No, I don't. God is far above me. His ways are higher than my ways, and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. So Joseph gets lost, but this man finds him, tells him to go to Dothan. So they go, verse 18. The brothers, they saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They hate him. Their jealousy has gave birth to their sin like James said. The, like uh, the book of James says. They hate him. They can't stand him. They can't take him anymore. Verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. No longer is he our brother. Now he's just a dreamer. They identify him only by their resentment towards him. Here comes that dreamer depersonalized him. Not our brother, not our father's son, that dreamer. Verse 20. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. They hated his dreams. They hated the doctrine of election. They didn't want to serve their younger brother. We'll take care of this dream. We can change God's plan. We'll crush him. We'll kill him. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. <laughs> Sorry, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Okay. They're going to kill his dream. They're going to take him out. They used to have big, these big water, these wells dug, right? That they could store water in. It's it's empty. They throw him in it. They're going to kill him. Verse twenty five. Then they sat down to eat. Look, this is just cold blooded. Kill the, We're going to kill the dreamer. We're going to kill his dream. We're going to throw him in a pit, and then they sit down to eat. That's just cold hearted. But look, look at this. This is this is so. This does my heart good. Look at God's invisible hand at work here. Verse 25. And looking up. Okay. They sit down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry down Egypt. Then Judas said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So look at this. God is in control of all of this thing. God is trying to get Joseph where he wants him and God's got to shape him into the man that he needs to be. God has got to temper him, but God doesn't do it absent of people's choices. God does it through his choices. So what God does is just accidentally, luck would have it, right? Fate Fatalistically, whatever, they sit down to eat a meal after they just threw their brother in a pit. And what do we see? They look up and it just so happens a caravan of Ishmaelites are right in front of them. And all of a sudden a thought pops in Judah's head. Wait, if we kill him. We get nothing out of this dude. But if we can sell him to these guys, we get a little cash in our pockets. Let's sell our brother. Let's not kill him. Do you see God's sovereign hand? Joseph finds some mystery man. This mystery man happens to overhear, right? He goes to Dauphin. Now all of a sudden these Ishmaelite traders are just in time. Why was Joseph lost in the desert? Probably to make time for this interaction right here. This is how God's providence works in the details of our life. And then lastly, verse 28, They drew Joseph up. They lifted him out of the pit. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And then I'm not going to read all of them, but the last thing is he ends up, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So God gets him where he wants him through the process that he needed to get there. Now listen, God has a purpose in all that he does in the world, and he providentially governs or directs all things so that they accomplish his purposes. I want you to hear this. Psalm 103, 19 says this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Daniel chapter four says this, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Paul says in Romans that from him and through him and to him are all things. And in first Corinthians, Paul says that all that God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. That God, He goes on to say, God is the one who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will so that ultimately at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father in Philippians chapter two. And then finally, the scripture that many of us know. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, all things work together together. For good to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. Listen, that verse, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That verse comes to you according to God's providence. Right? Without the providence of God, you don't get that verse. All things can't work together for your good unless God is sovereign over all things. And he's working every detail out for his purpose. Now listen, Romans 8, 28. That is a coffee cup verse. Oh, he's working all things out for my good. Right? That verse is not meant to be a, 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 a Christian's lucky verse. right? That you quote it or you rub it in your Bible and good things will happen to you. Romans 8.28, God is working all things for my good. That verse is meant to be a solid foundation when tornadoes are ripping through my neighborhood. That that verse is meant to keep my head above water when I feel like I'm drowning in the cares of this life. Romans 8, 8, 28. What it really means is, look at this. God, through Israel, says to Joseph, go to Dothan in Genesis 37. Go to Dothan. And Joseph ends up in the pit, and he's about to be sold into slavery. Can you, put, can you picture this into your mind? I'm, I, what about my dreams? I've had these dreams. I'm supposed to be exalted, and my brothers are bowing before me. And Joseph obeys God, obeys his father, goes to Dothan, winds up in the pit. You know he's in the pit praying for God to rescue him. God, save me. Don't let my brothers kill me. Don't let my brothers sell me. Don't let this happen. God, why? God, where are you? God, how can you, this dream and this good stuff that you promised for my life, how could this be true? How could you be real if this is happening to me? He's freaking out. His whole life is over. All the dreams are nothing at this point. The robe is gone. He's praying to God. But the Lord seemingly does nothing. And he's sold into slavery. Then what's interesting. If you go to 2 Kings 6. You find a man in the exact same place. The city of Dothan. In this situation. The city is surrounded. And they're all about to be destroyed by the Assyrians. Assyrians. And this man named Elisha, he prays and God sends chariots of fire and miraculously destroys all the Assyrians. (gasps) What? Two prayers, same spot, same basic kind of problem. What happens? In one case, God sends chariots of fire. In the other case, God does nothing. But if we, I'm going to give you the back of the story, if we take, if we go to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, after the whole process is over, all the slavery and all the abuse and all the turmoil that Joseph is about to go through, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph through, through his slavery has now risen to be prime minister of Egypt. And he says this to his brothers. He's reunited with his brothers and he says this. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. If he knew that, Joseph, the one who was sold by his own brothers, the one that was, you're going to find out, was in dungeons and, and horrible things happened to you. If Joseph knew that. That what men meant for evil, God can use sovereignly through his providence for our good. How much more do we know it on this side of the cross? How much more can you face life knowing the one who rules the universe rules it for us? See, This story shows us that Joseph wasn't an innocent sufferer that all of our Sunday school teachers told us he was. He was a sinful, arrogant brat. But many years later, a truly innocent sufferer would come through Joseph's brother's lineage, Judah. And that truly innocent one, Jesus, would be also sold for silver. But he wouldn't be rescued through the providence of God. Jesus didn't get a rescue plan from God. Jesus took the full weight of the punishment that we deserve, and he paid for it with his life. See, Jesus took 100% of the punishment that we deserve for our sin and our rebellion against God. And because Jesus took all of our punishment, now we can know for certain that any suffering that comes into our life, is not punitive. Any suffering that comes into our life, it's not a punishment for our sin. It's redemptive. It's for our good. It's character developing, humility creating, heart softening, discipline from our loving Heavenly Father. Do you know that? God, it's not too much to... Listen, did God throw him in a pit? No. Did God allow him to be thrown into a pit? Did God plan for him to be thrown into a pit? Yes. Does God use evil for his own purposes? Absolutely. It's called the cross. He allowed evil men to crucify the sinful God man. God is sovereign. I get so frustrated by preachers and pastors who act like God is in heaven with his hands tied. And every tornado that rips through a neighborhood, that Satan is up there going, whoa. And Satan's in control of it. And God's going, oh, I wish I really was powerful enough to stop this tornado if I wanted to. God is using all things for his glory. Do we understand it? No. But what we have to do is we have to go to the story of Joseph and say, okay, Joseph was deceived by his brothers. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Joseph was almost killed by his brothers. Joseph spent many years away from his family, sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, but God was at work for Joseph's good. Therefore, if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, every negative thing that comes into my life has came through the gracious, invisible hand and providence of God, and I no, it's meant for my good. If you get this, this is like an unshakable foundation. When our kids disobey, when our kids maybe rebel, maybe when we have a prodigal that runs away, we can trust the sovereign hand of God. Right? When we were, Am I a perfect parent? No, you're not. Am I screwing my kids up? Yes, you are. But we can trust the providential, invisible hand of God. And this, when suffering comes, when cancer comes, when sickness comes, we trust that it comes through the hand of God. We're going we're to spend about 13 weeks studying the life of Joseph, and we're going to see this in the nitty gritty details of life. And I wanted to, I will in the future. Go through all the, the details of how God got this church started. It's phenomenal. Meet this guy, met that person, heard that, heard that. And it just, all the details come together. How you're here today. It's not an accident. Providential hand of God has guided you here. It's amazing. Now, let me close with this. C.S. Lewis married a woman named Joy Davidman. And she died and after she died, he wrote a book called a grief observed where he tried to work through his grief And at one point he he worked through his grief this way He says She is in god's hand And that gains a new energy when I think of her as a sword Perhaps the earthly life that I shared with her was only part of the tempering. Now, perhaps God grasps the hilt. He weighs the new weapon and he makes lightnings with it in the air. A right Jerusalem blade. I'm going to read it again just because C.S. Lewis is so amazing. He's working through the grief of his wife dying. And he says this. She's in God's hand. That gains a new energy when I think of her as a sword. Perhaps the earthly life that I shared with her and all of her suffering was only part of the tempering. Now perhaps God grasps the hilt. He weighs the new weapons, the weapon and he makes lightnings with it in the air. A right Jerusalem blade. That's exactly what's going on in your life. God is tempering you. He has been honing you. He has been sharpening you all of your life in everything you've done, right and wrong. He's turning you into a right Jerusalem blade, something that will be sharp, something that will be beautiful, something that will be great in his hands, something that won't break when battle tested. Every single circumstance in your life is sent to you for this purpose. He's making you into a right Jerusalem blade. And I know that brings up all kinds of questions. What about this? And what about that? And what about all the really horrible things that have happened? Had God done? No, God didn't do it. Did God allow it? Absolutely. Did God keep you safe? Absolutely. Did God get you here? Absolutely. Why? To temper you to make you into the man or woman you need to be and you're called to be. So in the future, when whatever it is that you're called to do, when that opportunity meets the preparation of God, that's where the light comes on. That's where destiny happens. But but don't jump off, to, to change metaphors, don't jump off the potter's wheel right? Stay there. It's tough. It's difficult. It's hard. It's sharpening. It's good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story of Joseph. I thank you for getting to see that we're not in the story. Sometimes when we're in the story and all the horrible things are happening in our life and cancer and sickness and and pain and loss and relation relational discord, sometimes when we're in it, we, we, we're like Joseph in the pit and we're praying and we're asking for rescue and we feel like you're not answering us. But now it's such a gift that we get to study your word and we get to look in on Joseph's story and we can say, wow, God is at work. God is Providential. God is over all things and God has a plan. Even if I can't understand it right now in the moment, even if I can't see it in the moment, I can have faith and believe that God is sovereign over all the details of all of creation. And he's working all things out for my good because I've been called according to your purpose. Thank you, God, for working for our good. And we see that clearly in the life of Joseph, but we see that even clearer in the life of Jesus. We lived the perfect life and yet suffering came and pain came and relational discord came and people turned their back on him and people gossiped about him and people labeled him and people called him all kinds of names and people laughed at him and scoffed at him. And that was all a part of your providential plan Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And right now, he's been perfected forever. Right now, he's been glorified. Right now, he's ascended. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he's our high priest. And he, he knows what it feels like to be man. He knows what it's like to have the pain and the turmoil and the loss. And he, He's right at the right hand of God. and He's pleading on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for being the perfect man and God, pleading for us on our behalf. And as we take part in your supper, we remember that your body was broken for us and that your blood was shed for us to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. That in the gospel, by faith, our salvation is secure Because you paid the price with your own precious, sinless blood. And then you can sit down because the work is completed. We don't have to atone for our sin. You've done it for us. Thank you for this beautiful gift. All glory to your great name. All glory to your father for thinking up this plan. I ask that you would communicate that grace to us now in a special way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.